Get ready. Brewers postseason tickets are on sale September 22nd. Secure your spot and prepare to unleash chaos, make mayhem, and watch stars come to life in the spotlight of postseason baseball. The Brewers moments you live for are coming. Make sure you don't miss a single pivotal pitch or season-changing home run. Get your Brewers postseason tickets at brewers.com slash postseason. Welcome to Adventures in the Spirit with Jared Lasky. Our hope is that you will be encouraged and equipped through this podcast as we have conversations with friends from around the world. You can subscribe to our podcast and go to our website, firebornministries.com, and sign up for our email list to stay up to date on Fireborn Ministries. And may you have your own adventures in the spirit. And now we hope you enjoy today's podcast. I want to welcome you to another episode of Adventures in the Spirit with Jared Lasky. We have a great interview lined up for you. I'm sure you don't want to miss I want to encourage you before we move towards our sponsor to please subscribe, rate, review, and share this podcast, Adventures in the Spirit. I hope it's encouraging you. I hope it's edifying you. I hope it's equipping and empower you to move out in your adventure with the Holy Spirit. Do you want to grow in your relationship with the Holy Spirit? Do you want to commune with the wonderful Holy Spirit like never before? Your adventure with Him will grow tremendously as you go through our Fellowship with the Holy Spirit e-course. You can study the course at your own pace or on your time. Fellowship with the Holy Spirit will help you know the Holy Spirit more and encounter Him every day. You'll learn His names, His character, His fruit, His personality, and more. Go to FirebornMinistries.com to purchase this life-changing program and start connecting with Him today. Hey guys, I have an incredible interview lined up for you. Father Conroy is the chaplain to the United States House of Representatives. And not too long ago, there was some controversy about a prayer that he prayed casting demons out of the House of Representatives July 18th of 2019. I interviewed him on March 3rd, Super Tuesday, on a very political day, and I found him to be a very humble, godly, spiritual man. You'll be getting an inside peek on how he was called into ministry, how he felt the leading of the wonderful Holy Spirit open up the doors for him to become a Jesuit priest, a lawyer, and also as the chaplain of the United States House of Representatives. He'll tell you about the events leading up to the prayer prayed on July 18th of 2019. You'll also hear about other ministry times where he'd done exorcisms and spiritual warfare. He's an incredible guy. He's very funny. And I hope that you will enjoy this and please share it with your friends. Father Conroy, chaplain to the U.S. House of Representatives. Precious, wonderful Holy Spirit, we thank you for this time that we could be here. In the name of Jesus, I bless Father Conroy and the tremendous spiritual authority that he has, the ministry that he's undertaken, the stances that he's stood upon, and the Word of God that is deep within him. We bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, Father Conroy, it is a pleasure to make your acquaintance to be here at the U.S. Capitol on this, what what do they call Super Tuesday? It is Super Tuesday. Super Tuesday. Uh, How did God call you into ministry? Well, um, I would have to say that uh, when I understood my call, uh, it was uh, was not a shock to me. It was a very strong sense of, oh, uh, yeah, I was called to this from my mother's womb. I was 22 years old. Mm. 
I am Roman Catholic, born and raised. Uh, I went to Catholic grade school. Uh, went to one year Catholic high school, and then I, I went public. I had a public high school graduate. I went to Claremont Men's College, uh, non-sectarian private school in Southern California. My plan uh, was to be a United States senator, but I had always been a practicing Catholic. And even for my generation, I'm a baby boomer in the late 60s and early 70s when a lot of college age Americans were not going to church. And certainly among Catholics, uh, I was. Down at Claremont, I can still name for you the five other Catholics at Claremont that were regulars at Mass. And the, and the Claremont College communities, five colleges, there's easily 2,000 students, and probably a quarter of them would have been Catholic, but there were like six of us that went to Mass. Wow. So, so being a person of faith and denominational faith, being you know a Catholic, and knowing that and being at home with that has always been my consciousness. Being a priest was never, never my plan, never my intention, although I was asked uh, in, a, in a drama class once, uh, we were doing improvisational theater uh, exercises, and we were asked with the group to blue sky, if we, ha- if we could, what would we most want to be? And then the, the exercise was afterwards, in silence, interact with each person as if they were who they said that they would most want to be. And I took that very seriously. It was a drama class, right? And I, when it came my turn, I said, well, if I really, if I really could, I would, I would want to be a good Catholic priest, which was a prophetic word to myself. Right. It told me how highly I did value that. But in my own religious imagination, that wasn't the option couple reasons for that but I did not see that in myself I saw it as a high ideal well memory of things like that when I was 22 I was in law school in Spokane Washington at Gonzaga University went on a retreat asked to make a commitment to God I made a commitment to God that if God showed me what he wanted me to do with my life I would do it thought it was a pretty safe commitment because I figured God talked to crazy people or holy people and I didn't put myself in either category so I thought that's a very generous commitment on my part well done that'll be the end of that and a week later it was like I had an experience and boom it's like oh and I knew wow. I knew now, as a Catholic, I knew what that meant was that I was, I was called to enter the Jesuits, the Order Society of Jesus, and live out my life as a Jesuit. And most Jesuits become priests. So it was more, to me, a vocation to become a Jesuit, but that meant becoming a priest. Right? So there are Roman Catholic priests whose call is to be a priest, and then they might join the Jesuits or Dominicans or Benedict or a different order, but their call is to be a priest. Mine was to be a Jesuit. That was very dramatic. Uh, first year of law school, I finished uh, law school and then I joined the Jesuits. I thought my life was changed forever, that that was the end of law school, that was the end of the senator, being senator, that was the end of all that. I'm on a new, I'm on a new path with God. Within the Catholic uh, world and within religious life in the Catholic Church, 
my understanding was that God's will will be played out in my life, in my faithfulness to my religious vows. And now I accept in that is that is the belief that God acts through Jesuit superiors, that my ministry within the Catholic Church would be within the Jesuits who would assign me and prepare me for ministries in various places. Uh, and I was very comfortable with that then, very comfortable with that now. As a matter of fact, that's how I got here. Despite myself, when I finished my first studies as a Jesuit, which meant philosophy, instead of doing the normal course and becoming a high school teacher, the Jesuits sent me back to law school. So holy obedience, you're going to be a lawyer. I'm like, okay. Right, so that's what I did. Uh, in the fullness of time, to use a little biblical phrase, had me as a seminarian before I went to study theology become a lawyer for the Colville Indian tribes in uh, Washington State. That's what got me into Native American ministry. And it was a Native American ministry, quite frankly, that uh, the most regular and prolific engagement in charismatic, what Catholics call charismatic prayer, mm -hmm. but it's it's basically Pentecostal prayer, yeah. that I became very practiced and very comfortable with praying in the Holy Spirit. And, and as a matter of fact, very comforted by it. Yeah. Now, just to backtrack just a touch, when I was in my first year of law school, it was 1972-73, in the Catholic Church at that time, we were, it was after the Second Vatican Council, undergoing what we Catholics called the Charismatic Renewal. A big Charismatic Catholic community uh, was founded in Cincinnati, Ohio, for example. Rich, Father Richard Rohr was a big part in that. Your Listeners may know that name, but he is very well read and spoken. Um, and so I would go to a charismatic prayer meeting on Wednesday nights at Gonzaga University. And, you know, after four or five weeks of being there as people were praying and singing in tongues and, and uh, prophecy and all these things, I was gifted with the gift of tongues. And in Catholic circles, that would have been considered freaky, except this was a Catholic charismatic group during the charismatic renewal at, on a university campus. That's where freaky stuff happens, right? Amen. So, yeah. So, anyway, so I'm in, you know, in that sense. And uh, so then I, you know, I, I learned about, you know, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, the Pauline gifts of the Holy Spirit and when I then when I finished as a lawyer with the with the with the tribes I then went to theology in Berkeley and I took a couple of, of classes in uh, pneumonology you know the, the spirit and you know the gifts of the spirit especially in the call to service or ministry or religious life that if one is not called by God to whatever one is doing, no matter how good it is, if you're not called by God, but undertaking it on your own initiative and volition, it's built on sand. Mm. To look at it negatively in my life, especially having grown up in the 50s, in the early, in the 60s, pre-Vatican II for us Catholics, there were 
convents full of nuns and there were seminaries full of priests and many of the priests and nuns that I grew up with were in retrospect profoundly unhappy people and I think uh, God blessed them their desire was to be of the highest service they could be to God right but they weren't called by God to that. And so the joy of the Holy Spirit, the freedom of the Holy Spirit, you know, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit wasn't denied them, but it wasn't, it wasn't the seed of their religious life and their religious work. And for your listeners, uh, in, in terms of discernment of spirits, it is easy, not easy, it is a, a hazard of the business that when people, when men or women are trying to follow the Holy Spirit, does Satan want you to? Hmm. No. So how would Satan get a person who wants to follow the Spirit not to? By attracting them to something that's very good to which they're not called by God. So Satan doesn't tempt a good person or a holy person with evil. It won't work. You tempt a good person to attempt to live a life that is good by every standard, but to which they're not called. And so discernment of spirit. Now this, I think this is relatively easy in the terms of ministry. I put myself forward as somebody, I want to be a Catholic priest. Well, in the Catholic Church, there are procedures by which a person is admitted in, even into seminary and then trained. And all along, there are men and more and more women whose life commitment and work is in the church who are accompanying you know, men preparing for the priesthood that over time is kind of like, you know what? God bless you that you want to do this, but not seeing the hand of the Spirit in this. We're not seeing evil, but in a profound way, your goodness and your happiness lies elsewhere. And that's good, because that is God's call to you. This one's not. And how do you identify the hand of the Spirit on people's lives? Well... It's, you know, by their fruits, you will know them. All right. So a lot of times, especially with, with good people, but it's certainly, to me, it's a lot easier once people have gone certain ways and then it's like real clear. But in my own case, my own case, and this has helped me in helping other people, my desire as a young Jesuit was to spend my life living and working among Native people. That desire came out of an idealism and a desire to live and work among the poor. In, and in the United States, we have our poor, but certainly we do in native country. And so I wanted to give my life living and working among native people. And it was a great idealism. I was, a, I was a lawyer who had helped them legally, and then I became a priest and was assigned to the reservation where my prayer life and my charismatic prayer life was called upon often 
especially for healing services, a lot of a lot of healing, uh, casting out of spirits. I mean, that's where, that's what I was harking back to. You, what was the date? You said you got the date? It was July 18th. On July 18th, it was my remembering blessing homes where spirits were heard or seen in Indian country. Father, you need to come out and cleanse this house. Or praying over people who, you know, were cursed or what, you know, I mean, it's all, all this stuff that white society, you know, thinks is, you know, come on, that's a little bit. In, in native country, it's like that openness to the spiritual life is much more tangible. It's real. That taught me and trained me to engage in the life of the spirit and always considered it a gift from God that I didn't hear spirits. I didn't see spirits. I didn't know people's ailments. I just invoked the spirit. That's what I brought. I didn't bring the spirit. The Lord had me there to invoke the spirit, Wonderful. having been, you know, anointed, right? So I had intended that the rest of my life would be doing that. And after five years of doing that, uh, my physical health and my psychological health had deteriorated to rock bottom. The truth of the matter is my, in a weird sense, my religious pride had brought me to that. Mm. It was I who wanted to be the heroic minister, the heroic, you know, missionary to the Native American people. It wasn't what God was calling me to. Mm. That's how the evil works. Because nobody in my life was saying, oh, you know, what a jerk you are for, for wanting to live and work with, with Indian people. Right. We all know how hard that is. God bless you for your, you know, for being good people. Good people telling me how great I was. But was I becoming a better person? No, I wasn't. I was becoming angrier, hmm. becoming depressed. And as a matter of fact, I was spiritually proud because I had classmates who were Jesuits who were, whose work was with upper middle class Americans in Jesuit high schools or Jesuit universities or other places. And in my heart of hearts, I was saying, I'm the only one that's taking, you know, yeah. uh, the uh, Matthew 25 seriously. Or I'm the only one who's dying to myself. You know, unless I take up my own cross, I cannot fall. That, and that was a scripture passage that I abused. Wow. Unless you die to yourself, you cannot live. That's biblical. But my caveat would be this. Follow first. God's call to you in your life and you will die to yourself. Yeah. You don't go out killing yourself to follow God. And they look the same unless you've got that discernment thing, which is also why discernment and vocation, I think, in, in religious life, and I'm not saying Roman Catholic religious life, I mean in a life of faith, in a life of servant, a service, a life of community in the church, is a communal vocation. It's not just personal. A person does not decide. God has called me. Right. That has to be confirmed 
by the people of God. That has to be confirmed by a community of believers who can look and say, we see that. We see those signs in you. Or conversely, I'm sorry, that's, we don't see that. Yeah. That sounds like you. And that can be tricky, but I do think it's authentic. Yeah. And that authenticity will out. Right. How are you able to get out of that dark season? Well, grace of God, the fact that my health was deteriorating on all levels and I was not an unhealthy human being. I mean, I was interestingly enough. And see, here's the thing. The number of Jesuits, looking back now to the 80s, the number of Jesuits in the Pacific Northwest, which is where I'm from, who were engaged in ministry with the native people in the Northwest was about 10, Hmm. which is about 32 few given how large the reservations were, how widespread, you know, I mean, it's, and that is a difficult ministry. And part of, part of it is cross, any cross-cultural ministry is difficult. Not everybody can or should do it. All right. It's rural. Not everybody can do that. Right. You know, and relatively uneducated, and we Jesuits are famously overeducated. Not everybody can do that. There's ways of discerning such things. But it's a small, cohesive group, always appreciative when a young Jesuit comes along, which I was, who wants to join them. That's what I did. So they're always encouraging me, too. But we met. uh, We were in Diaspora, but we'd come to Spokane to meet uh, once a month. So we'd spend a day together. We'd do faith sharing together. Then we'd do planning, you know, for what our ministry would look like. So we, you know, we didn't have a bunch of lone rangers out there, but we were actually working together and and we'd get to know one another's populations. But over time, we all got to know one another very well. After four years, we all made a retreat together. Now, Jesuits make a retreat every year, but this year we decided to make it together. And we used a thing which is not from the religious world. So some of your listeners might think, well, called the Myers-Briggs Personality Indicator. I've done that. Yeah. We all took that instrument. I'm an ISTJ. Richard Ward's got a great series on this. Anyway, and we were given that test, and then our retreat was directed by two Catholic nuns who, through the course of our retreat, were giving examples of how different personality types are maximized their giftedness, who we are, gifted by God. Our giftedness is maximized in this type of ministry and minimized in this type of ministry. And here was the key when it came to, unless you die to yourself, you cannot live. The key to that is, you first of all, you must know who you are yes. before you give that up. Yes. You need to know what your giftedness is. You need to know what you're good at, what you can succeed at, what makes you a better better and better person, which is a gift, okay? What are the things not to do, either to frustrate that or to minimize your giftedness? And, and as I tell these stories, all the other Jesuits would just look at me and go, so like they knew I was in the worst possible place for who I really am. And I didn't know that about myself. So that 
it was ever clearer that I, it was my ego that was choosing the ministry that I chose and not God's gift and call that, that was driving this. And it became very clear. And we had a language now for it of, wow, the, the discernment of spirits here is that this is, is in Deuteronomy 30, 31, I put before you life and death. Choose life. Yes. And it was real clear. I wasn't. I was choosing death. It was, it, and it, I was deceived. I mean, the spirit that called me to the reservation was not the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. In, at the end of it, you look back and it's like, oh my God. But I never made an evil choice. I, you know, I never made a wrong choice. I, I never wanted to do evil. I never wanted to be, I didn't want to get sick. I didn't want, I didn't, I didn't choose that. How did that happen? Well, I wanted to do good and I was invited to do less good and less good and less good. And pretty soon it's like, I'm looking, how did I get here? That's the discernment of spirits. And so when I'm listening to somebody or looking at somebody or talking to somebody and they're angry all the time, they're argumentative all the time, they're impatient all the time, they gotta win all the time. I just thought, just, there's just a lot of things. It's like, are you a happy person? Is the work that you do or the life that you are living, are you becoming a better human being or are you becoming a shark? Are you becoming an angry, spiteful person. Do you really think that's what God wants for you? Hmm. Yeah, but I'm, I'm working in a soup kitchen. I'm running a soup kitchen. These people are just funny. Great work, not for you. Let somebody else do that because it's not life giving for you. Right. How many good people do we know? that do good things and they're miserable. Uh, I can identify because I thought after youth ministry I was supposed to become a pastor. That didn't work out so well. But then God eventually showed me my gifts, my call, my office in the fivefold ministry and it wasn't supposed to be pastor. Yeah. Wow. Easy to get deceived. Easy. And even though I was doing busy work and I was seeing people come to Jesus, seeing people get healed, it still wasn't to the extent that it is now. Yeah. Where now I know who I am and whose I am. I belong to Jesus. Yeah. I'd mentioned your prayer July 18th of 2019. I guess there have been several prayers since you're the House of Representatives chaplain. So thank you so much for your service for that. How did the Holy Spirit lead you to pray that that prayer that you prayed on a house floor? Well, I've been here almost nine years now. It'll be nine years in May. And of course, that was a year ago. So eight years. I've been here eight years. This has always been a contentious place. People think it's worse now than it's ever been. No, it's never not been worst. It's never not been worst. Whatever... Any house has ever lived through is the worst that everybody. 
I don't think anybody's ever served in the House of Representatives. You know, I, things are better around here than they used to. No, I don't think anybody's ever said that. All right, so to put a little perspective, when I first came here, and I was embarrassed of myself because I was a poli-sci major. I did want to become a politician, so I wasn't naive. I understood what politics meant. It meant compromise. It meant knowing you're right, but that you're not going to get everything you want. And so you got to, you know, I, I know that. I knew that. I wish more Americans knew that now. But anyway, when I came, I, I didn't have my own schedule or anything. So the time that I, you know, had, if there, if there's a debate going on up on the floor, I'd go up and sit in on the debate, watch the debate. Now that, even that suggests that debate's something different than what it actually is. So here's what a debate sounds like on the floor of the House. A Republican gets up. Yeah, Mr. Speaker, they address the Speaker. They don't talk to one another. Mr. Speaker, this piece of legislation is designed to help families to uh, take better uh, health care of their children, uh, get them to better schools, and make sure they have uh, enough to eat every day. I, re I uh, reserve the balance of my time. The Democrat gets up. Mr. Speaker, this is the worst piece of legislation in the history of legislation. It will, it cuts food programs for this. It cuts it in. I reserve the rest of my time. Sits down, Republican gets up. Uh, Mr. Speaker, the, the wonderfulness of this bill, just restating, I reserve, getting up, restating, and they're, it's like, they're back and forth. They're not listening to one another. They're talking past one another. Meanwhile, nothing's getting done. And I'm starting to, I mean, I'm starting to think, oh my, what did, what, what did I get myself into? What is my response? What can I, what can I do to help Fix this. Now, this is at 60 years of age, having failed many times in ministry, to be, to be able to pick up the signs right away. It's like, wait a minute. I am not the savior of the House of Representatives. Right. Somebody else has that job. My job is to pray for these people. And what are these feelings that I'm having? And I realized I was... I was eight years old listening to my parents argue past one another. Mm. The adults in my life were not taking care of business. They were not communicating with one another and my family's not getting fixed. And I, I, I was embarrassed with myself. You know, I'm still vulnerable. I'm still vulnerable to this. I'm still hurt by it. And if I'm not careful, as a, like I was when I was eight years old, I took, I blame myself for my family. It's like, no, but every little kid and every broken family does that. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of, you know, the, the, that youthful uh, egocentrism that comes natural to the human race, that things aren't working because of me. And I almost started down that path, except I remember this. I recognize what this is. This is not the Holy Spirit. 
Yeah. So I've known for eight years, these people disagree about everything. And it's their job. And publicly, they say what they say in public. And then when the cameras aren't on, they actually do sit down with one another and figure some stuff out. Public doesn't see that. Nor does that get trumpeted. The disagreement's much more sexy, you know. It's, right. Yeah. So anyway, what's going on? I'm sitting in here. You know what? TV's on right now. I could turn on the house isn't in session, but when the house is in session, I can turn it on C-SPAN, and I can see what's going on up on the floor. And this one day, this was one of these weeks, you can go back. If you could check the tweet record of President Trump, in the week leading up to July 18th, just check the tweet record. Nancy Pelosi gets up on the floor. She doesn't usually do that. And I see that, and I beeline up to the House floor. Uh, I don't usually do that, but it's Nancy Pelosi. And she's loaded for bear. I mean, it just I just had this feeling. It was like, whoa, something's going to... She's going to say something. She's not up there. You know. So I went up there, and sure enough, I'm, I'm up there, and she's talking. And the, the leadership on both sides aren't limited. They can just talk wherever they want. And she finally gets to the point where she says, this house must reprimand the racial tweets of the President of the United States. Something like that. That's, that was the meaning of it. His tweets were racist. He wasn't. His tweets were. You know, and I'm like, ooh, that's pretty, a little harsh. You know, there, there was a Democrat and a Republican who were the debate leaders and maybe a few other. At which point, the Republican staffers leaped to their feet. Now, most members of Congress really don't know the minutiae of the rules. Most don't. Those that have been here a real long time, maybe by osmosis, have picked us up. But most don't. The staffers do. So the staffers leapt up, you know, and, and the Republican member went, and, and they're saying, and, 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 and he turned, Mr. Speaker, I strike, I move to strike the words of the Speaker. And for the next hour and a half, I mean, you know, the gentleman shall suspend. And Nancy's had to suspend. Yeah. The staffers from both sides went down to the days where the parliamentarian is to start jabbering about what this is all about. And the members are like, what's this all about? Hmm. And basically, there is a House rule that you are not allowed maybe to call anybody, but not the pre president of the United States, a racist. It's against House rules. And so the point of order is, does the speaker need to be reprimanded herself for having done that on the floor, if in fact that's what she did? And that took an hour and a half of history, you know, parliamentarians arguing. And because this is all going down, members start trickling in. Something's going on. Yeah. Well, as I was sitting there, I was looking at all the members and with the exception of one or two members who I would say are a little bit on the hot-headed side, members themselves were, they weren't emotionally invested in this issue. You know, they're like, 
talking like, do you know I have any idea what that, you know, I mean, they're, they're talking with one another, what the heck, you know, what, you know, and, and so there wasn't, there was no negative or dark energy as far as I could tell coming from the House of Representatives, from the membership, but there was a dark power over the House. The House of Representatives was brought to its knees about presidential tweets. What is this what we're supposed to be about? And it was just like, nobody here wants to be dealing with this. Nobody wants to be dealing with this. And yet, they're all stuck with it. I felt that kind of and it was a sadness almost. I mean, I hadn't felt in eight years. They disagree about stuff. Again, it wasn't, there wasn't, there wasn't an evil spirit coming out of the house, but there was, there was one affecting the house. Nobody wanted to even talk about it. You know, I didn't even want to talk about it. And I thought, I recognize this. You know, I lived in an alcoholic community. I lived in a, a native community where there were generational curses passed down. Yeah. Where families, internally and externally, were enemies. And none of the people that I knew were that, but it was there. And it's like, I can't believe this, but I need to do this. Yeah. I mean, that, that, that was it. That was enough for me. I tried not to figure out what that evil spirit was or what that darkness was to place particular personal blame or anything like that. I just knew that the spirit of this place was sadness, shame, frustration, disappointment, just nothing, nothing of the Holy Spirit. And it wasn't member to member. It just wasn't. It was just something else. And I thought, now it's inter what was interesting, again, these things, it's funny how they come together. The day before, I don't know if you know who Roger and Lynn's story are. An elderly couple, they have some kind of a ministry uh, to youth and youth in prayer. And so they bring young people, sponsor young people coming to the Capitol to pray. Wow. You know. Amazing. Well, they came in, they happened to be on campus, and they asked to come in and visit with me, and they visited with me. Can we say a prayer for you, this or that? And, and, and they said to me, he says, well, we just thought, and they're Southerners, so they got this great accent. We just thought it's important that we, that we come and pray for you because people, there are curses descending on this place every day. Now, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I pray in tongues. I've seen, I think, the effects of dark spirits and the evil spirit. I think I've seen those things. But I don't walk around thinking this place is besieged by evil spirits and curses. I don't go through my life like that. Right. But neither do I doubt that's true. Yeah. How many people, even good people, faith people in this country curse politicians they do not agree with? That's the good people. Yeah. Curses descend upon this place ought not to be a surprise to anybody. 
I had just never confronted it like that and realized I need to do something here. Now, maybe I should do that every day, but doing it once was people all of a sudden were like, whoa. Yeah. It's kind of like Ash Wednesday for, for our as captain. It's a big day around here. A lot of people want to get their ashes on their forehead. Would that be a big deal if we did it every day? No. No. The fact that it's rare is like, whoa. And that day, more than any other day, actually more than any other day, I actually felt compelled by the Spirit to do that. Now, if you were to go over and talk with the Senate chaplain, he's a little, maybe a little closer to the Spirit than I am because there are many times he feels compelled or impelled by the Spirit to pray prayers that he didn't prepare, mm. but the moment called for. Yeah. But his ministry is a little different than mine. He's much closer in a smaller community, and his relationship as almost as a pastor, although he's not a pastor, but it's it's closer. So he can prophetically chide members of the Senate, and he does wow. from time to time. But nobody accuses him of being abusive. Right. It's like, oh my, all right, all right. You know, the preacher's preaching. He has more experiences of that than I. Well, I've only really had that one, I felt. Huh. I pray for events. When I'm praying for the coronavirus almost every day right. now. I, I actually do think that the coronavirus is calling the people of God worldwide to recognize our common vulnerability, our common relationship as brothers and sisters. Yes, sir. I believe that the church is to shine brighter through this. Cindy Jacobs has declared today, I think, an international day or global day of prayer against the coronavirus. Oh, yeah. Today. And a prophetic minister by the name of Sean Bowles has an article on Fox News about what the Holy Spirit showed him. It's on Fox News this afternoon. That's encouraging. But for me... I'm encouraged knowing that you and the other and the, the chaplain of the Senate are here as watchmen praying. Your job is to pray. That's it. That's it. My, my job is not to produce. I ask for miracles. That's God's job. That's right. When people say, oh, you must have a really difficult ministry. Well, it's only difficult if I think I'm responsible. Yeah. If I think I'm supposed to fix the house or if I think I'm supposed to get people to agree all of a sudden or I think that uh, it's my the quality of my prayers or the whatever is what is going to I am faithful to what I understand my call is which is to pray and accompany these men and women yeah know who you are know whose you are yes and be faithful to that and God honors our faithfulness not our success love it whatever the success we think would be. So that Mother Teresa did not set out to end poverty in India. Right. She set out to serve the poor. Yeah. That she was faithful. That's all we're called to. Be faithful. Yep. I want to say thank you so much for taking your time out of your busy schedule for this interview. I know that I'm encouraged. I know that my listeners will be encouraged. What is the best way that we can pray for you and pray the house? One of the greatest systemic dangers of life on Capitol Hill for the men and women whose job, vocation, avocation, their call to service is, 
is to lose touch with their humanity. Now, your listeners might be thinking, well, yeah, they're all egocentric and they're all think they're better than everybody else or greater than everybody else. And it's that's not the majority of what I'm talking about. That's not the main problem here. The main problem here is that this is a very inhumane, toxic environment, systemically. Members of Congress, this is worse for congressmen, I think, than senators, are elected every two years. People say there should be term limits. The term limit is the ballot. You don't like somebody, you vote them out. Don't blame them for getting reelected. So they're running for office all the time. When they're here in Washington, D.C., which is usually, let's say, from Monday evening until Thursday noon, or Tuesday evening until Friday noon. They're scheduled from 8 a.m. sometimes to 10 p.m. Their staffers work longer. Their families, they're discouraged from bringing their families to Washington with them. Now, if they're married and have young children, they don't want to yank their kids out of home, out of their homes back home and bring them here because they might lose in two years and then they're yanking them out of here and take... So they don't want... They don't want to disrupt their family life, all right? Plus, their voters don't want them to have their family life. And economically, they can't afford to either. They can't, who can afford to have two homes? Unless we want just rich people running for office. And they're expected to go home every weekend. So they work 18-hour days for four days here. And then, you know, if if you're a congressman from Colorado or or New Mexico, or California, you're 10, you're 10 hours on an airplane every week. Every week. And then when you're home, are you spending time with your family? Not quality. Not quality time. You're missing out on everything. When they're here, working these long hours, at the end of the day, what do they go home to? Do they go home to their family like everybody else? No. No. It is inhumane. And it's toxic. Because they're at it. Have your people pray for the members of Congress, not hate them. Yes. Thank God for the members of Congress and ask God to bless the members of Congress with everything they need to be their best selves every day. Because if they are that, they will be better congressmen. All right? So... Pray for the members of Congress that they be their best selves. And pray for their families whose sacrifice is equally, equally onerous. Who wants this job? Now, the thing, the only saving part of this is that members of Congress, they run for office, all right? It's a life they chose. But it's not a life I would wish on anybody. And I would think most of your listeners and most people of faith would say, I never thought about. How awful this life of service is. It's awful. So despise not your politician. Love them and bless them. Help them in any way that you can so that they would be their best self. And in the fullness of time, in God's grace, if it's your belief that what God wants for your politician is not to be a politician well, then good. Vote them out. But don't treat them as an enemy. Yeah. Don't treat them as the problem. Same applies to me. That my ministry 
would be, first of all, life-giving for me, that I would become more of a human being by being in this ministry, and that my ministry to them, my presence to them, my encounter with each one of them every day is a humanizing experience for them. I don't mean, this might sound a little odd, but I don't mean a spiritually meaningful encounter, although I hope that would be the case. No, let's start with the human. Right. That is, it's got to be human first, and it's got to be authentic, and that builds up the per, the soul. That builds up the person so that it can be, you know, it can be a spiritual event as well. Last, this is the last thing. When I came here, I was teaching high school freshmen out in Portland, Oregon, fourteen year olds. My home state. Eight years at Jesuit High in Portland. The joke is that that prepared me for this ministry, teaching 14-year-olds. <laughs> I came back here and I decided that the last thing that a member of Congress ever needed to encounter in the chaplain was somebody who judged them, who was disappointed with them, who was unhappy to see them, or in any way would not want to encounter the chaplain. So I decided that every member of Congress I met, I was happy to see. Yeah. I would walk around this place not looking like a goof, but not frowning, you know. Yeah. Trying to appear at peace, trying to appear happy. I have a, a happy habit of humming all the time. And so people always assume I'm in a good mood. It's a foil. It's just a habit. I hum all the time. It's not because I'm always happy, but... Guess what? Actually kind of works. After eight years of acting like I am happy, guess what I am? You're happy. I'm happy. It works. If you're not sure you're a good Christian, act like one. Try that for a month and then come back and tell me you're not a good Christian. I love it. What is the best way that our listeners can get a hold of your ministry? There is, uh, there is a website. I don't go to it myself, but I mean, you can find it easy enough. It's it, probably the office of the chaplain of the House of Representatives. Google that and you'll get to, you know, the chaplain's website. Otherwise, you go through the clerk of the house and the chaplain's office would be under the clerk's menu. Of course, you can become, you know, have no life whatsoever and become a C-SPAN viewer. Every day that the house opens, there's a chaplain. It's either me or a guest chaplain giving an opening prayer. There's also a website called House Live, one word, houselive.gov, that has film of every day of Congress. So you can look back to to old, you know, so you can find Jan uh, July 18th. Actually, yeah. you probably could... July 18th and see my, you know, I'm wearing, I'm wearing my tan linen suit because it's July right. with my brown suit. So it's kind of my mission, my African missionary suit because it's really hot around here. <laughs> that also kind of dates it. I don't wear that suit in the wintertime. So you can always look these things up. You know. Well, thank you so much. Would you mind praying for my listeners right now? Where are your listeners? All around the world. All around the world. Holy Spirit. Yes, <laughs> 
தேக்கிற்கான கௌதவத்திற்கு ஒரு <laughs> a world so sadly in need of these things in the time of this coronavirus especially lord we ask that you gift those men and women whose lives work is in extending your healing ministry and presence in our world bless us all as brothers and sisters in the name of your son jesus we pray amen Amen. Thank you so much for listening to our conversation in Adventures in the Spirit. We hope that this podcast encouraged and inspired you to press into Jesus and launches you into your own adventure. You can stay up to date with Fireborn Ministries by going to our website, firebornministries.com, and like us on Facebook. And may you have your own Adventures in the Spirit. McDonald's presents Burger Reviews by Hamburglar. Today's review, the best ever Big Mac burger. Take it away, Hamburglar. Bravo, bravo. He said, there's more special sauce in every bite. Bravo, bravo. He said, rubble, rubble. Bravo, rubble. Rubble, rubble indeed, my friend. Try the juicier Big Mac and get 20% off any purchase of $10 or more. Only on the app. Comparison to prior classic burgers, limited time only at participating McDonald's. Valid once per day. Excludes tax. Must be opted into rewards. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.